for our Bible study this morning. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 10. If you're here this morning and you are new or for some reason you don't have a Bible with you, the ushers are coming up and down the aisles right now with Bibles. If you get their attention, they will give one to you so you can follow along with us in our study this morning. If this is your first time here, I'd like to welcome you. I did uh, see as I was looking around some faces that I didn't recognize. Um, We appreciate you coming to worship with us this morning, and you're welcome here. Um, We, as a church, study the Bible line upon line, verse by verse, in that I'm not the regular Sunday morning um, teacher. It's a a kind of a a different place this morning from where we are normally on Sundays, but nevertheless, we study uh, through the Bible. And so this morning, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 10. And one more time, would you just uh, go to the Lord with me in prayer as we ask him to just bless our time in his word. And so, Father, we just thank you for uh, this amazing gift, not just of our salvation and of Jesus, but we thank you for the church, the body of Christ, for the family of God. We thank you, Lord, that you have included us and that you've made us one. You've given us one heart and one mind. And, Father, as we're here now, we pray that your word inspired by you, would be spoken to us and anointed by your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would give us one ear, that we would hear together what you want to speak to the church this morning. And Lord, where we need um, instruction, correction, where we need inspiration, transformation or change, Lord, we ask that you would do that work in us now. And so we commit this time to you. We give thanks for it. Lord, please do your will in every soul that's here. You know each one. And so we ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It says that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked upon him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose nickname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, and he shall tell you what you ought to do. And when the angel which spoke unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. And on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, so about 12 noon. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Pete, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke unto him again the second time, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common or unclean. This was done thrice, three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted or wondered in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was nicknamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherefore you are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man and one that fears God and of good rapport among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for you into his house and to hear words of you. Then he called them in and lodged them. 
And on the morrow, Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And Peter was coming in. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up. I myself also am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for. I ask, therefore, for what intent have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and your alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter, he is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he comes shall speak to you. Immediately, therefore, I sent to you, and you have well done that you are come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Then Peter opened his mouth, and he said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believes in him shall receive the forgiveness of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision, the Jews, which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then he prayed, or they prayed him to tarry or to abide with them for certain days. The reason why the book of Acts, the book from which our passage uh, comes this morning, is in the Bible is because what it gives to us is a historical, spirit-inspired account of the early church in its inception. The church is something that did not always exist. The church was something that began after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. When the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls were saved that day, that was the beginning of the church. And the purpose for the book of Acts is that it, it shows us or gives to us the testimony of the church's first 30 years. Now, the value of the book beyond, you know, of course, the content and the things that we learn of God and, and learn uh, from it, the value of it is that it keeps us grounded in the simplicity of what church is. It is the definition. It is the textbook answer so that we don't get confused. It's amazing how complicated things can get over time. But essentially, the content of the book of Acts and all of its substance 
What it gives to us is how the gospel, the message of salvation, the message of Jesus Christ, went forth from the time of the beginning of the church and then spread first throughout Jewry in Jerusalem and Israel and then into the Gentile nations and thus uh, throughout the world. And that's the testimony of the book of Acts. Now, chapter 10, the passage that our, our text is this morning, is an important chapter in the book of Acts because what it explains to us is how the transition was made between the gospel going first to the Jews and now the jump being made to also the gospel going to the Gentiles. Everything prior to chapter 10, the message, the word, the mission, it was always aimed at and given to Jewish people, the Israelites. But from chapter 10 onward in the book of Acts, we see the gospel now going beyond those borders and into the regions of the Gentiles. Now, in the passage that's before us, in chapter 10, there are essentially four things that we have before us. Number one is we have a man whose name we see as Cornelius here, who is a man who is searching after God, a man who is in need of salvation. Now, isn't it interesting, I find it interesting, that it tells us that he was devout, that he was a giver and a supporter of God's work, that he was just, meaning that he did what was right, and, and, and that he was essentially a good man, that he prayed to God always. Now, you would think, why would a man like that be in need of salvation? But that's really the very heart and soul of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that there isn't anyone on the planet that can pray enough, that can give enough, that can be good enough, and that can search after God enough to be saved on their own. And this man, Cornelius, was a good man, but he was a lost man. And so we have a man who is in need of salvation. The second thing that we have in the passage is we have a second man who has the answer the man by the name of Peter. He was, of course, one of the 12 apostles, one of the ones that Jesus ordained and sent out, one of the pillars of the church. And Peter is a man who knows how to lead a man who's in need of salvation to the place of receiving salvation and thus being in a right relationship with God. So a lost man who needs salvation, a saved man who has the answer, Number three in the passage, we have a God who is orchestrating and arranging an interaction between these two men, the lost and the saved. We see God working on both ends. He is working, first of all, in the man Cornelius, showing him that he had a need and working out means whereby Cornelius can come in contact with a messenger. On the other side, we have God working in the heart of Peter, the saved man, preparing his heart for the interaction and orchestrating and arranging means whereby Peter can be brought to the man Cornelius to give him the message. So God orchestrating on both ends the meeting of these two souls for the sake of the lost man becoming saved. And then the fourth thing that we have in the passage is we have the interaction. The time when Peter comes face to face with Cornelius, delivers the message that was given to him by God, and thus the lost man becomes saved, and the gospel to the Gentiles thus begins. <clears throat> now, it's important that we understand, as we consider these things and look at them, is that they are not recorded for us on the pages of Scripture, simply that we might be informed of how the gospel started going to the Gentiles. Neither is it here simply as a trophy or a testimony of how Cornelius got saved. Wow, Peter led a man to the Lord, and we read about it in the Bible. Those things are both good. But that's not the reason why God had it recorded on the pages of Scripture. The reason is because it serves also as an example for us as to how God wants to reach the lost even in our generation and in our day and through our very lives. You see, the four things that happen in chapter 10 are simply a microcosm of what God is doing in the world every day today. Right now, you and I, we live in a world, first of all, filled with people, sometimes good people, sometimes devout people, righteous people, generous people, 
but people that don't know Jesus Christ personally, and thus they're not in a right relationship with God. They're good, but they're not saved. And we live in a world full of people that are without Christ. They don't know God. On the other hand, we have a room full now, and there's a world full of Christians, people that do know Christ, people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that have the answer to the need of those that are lost. The third thing that exists in the world today, even as it did in the passage, is that we have a God who is constantly orchestrating, or at least seeking to orchestrate and arrange meetings, face-to-face interactions between those that know the answer and those that need the answer. And God is constantly working behind the scenes to put the two things together so that an interaction can take place and some can be saved. Now that's happening all the time. And God's always at work. There's always lost. There's always saved. There's always opportunity. But oftentimes, that's where it breaks down. Often, what happens is that the interaction never takes place. God has arranged it, or he's seeking to. But when Christian comes face-to-face with non-Christian, oftentimes, there's no interaction that sees the lost person informed and ultimately saved. Why is it? Oftentimes, I believe it's because Christian, the Christian doesn't feel equipped. We don't know how. How do we do it? What's going to happen? What do I say? Fear creeps in. What if I don't know the words? What if a question comes up and I don't have the answer? And thus we shy away. We resist kind of the prompting or we miss the opportunity. And over time, as that happens, we become desensitized to the fact that that's what's going on around us. And sometimes it can even creep into apathy, wherein we become distracted by our lives and we stop caring about those that are lost. And it's a tragic thing. Because God has given us the answer, he's given us a message, and he's left us here on earth because he wants to use us. So in the passage, what do we see in this man Peter that God has also given to us? I'm not going to say he wants to give. It's something that he's already given to us, those of us that know Christ. What is it that Peter possesses that enables him to be so powerful and so effective in this interaction that this man is saved by the end of it? It's two things. It's very simple if you're writing them down. Number one, as we look at it, is we see that the position of Peter's life is that he was filled with and empowered by and led by the Holy Spirit of God. He was a man filled with, empowered by, and led by the Holy Spirit of God. When Jesus was about to go to heaven, he looked at the twelve. And he said to them, listen, it's important for you that I go to my father. Because when I go to my Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. And when Jesus said that, they had no idea what he was talking about. Then Jesus died, he rose, he appeared to them, and for 40 days he was with them after his resurrection, instructing them, encouraging them, teaching them. And one of the last things that Jesus said to the apostles before he ascended for the last time, they wouldn't see him again. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said these words. He said, you, he was speaking through them beyond, even to us. He said, you will receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, all three of those to the Jews. And then, fourthly, to the uttermost parts of the earth and beyond, even to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus said. You are going to receive power after the Spirit of God comes upon you and you'll be witnesses for me. Well, just 10 days after Jesus spoke those words, they were gathered together in an upper room and suddenly there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The place was filled and they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Tongues of fire descended and set and rested upon each of them. And they went out with joy that day and Peter preached a simple message and 3,000 people were added to the Lord. Power was given to the Christians on the day of Pentecost. And Peter said these words at preaching that first sermon. 
He said, if you repent and believe, you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The promise is for you and for your children and as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And thus the power of the Holy Spirit that Peter possessed is something that has been given to us. It's available, it's accessible, it's essential, and it's even commanded. As Paul the Apostle would say in the book of Ephesians 5.18, he would say, Be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And Peter was a man who was filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, without the Spirit's power in a life, if you and I choose to operate in our Christian experience absent the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit with us, then the result of that is that we cannot and we will not see life through an eternal perspective. We will not see the kingdom of God as the greater existence and purpose for our reality. We will not see souls in the true value of what they are. We'll see faces. We'll see bodies. We'll see the practical circumstances of life. We'll see our schedule and that which concerns us, and we will be enclosed in the very small prison of self. Because without the Spirit's power, we cannot see beyond self. We can't see the vulnerability. It's the Spirit of God working in our lives that gives us a love for God and a love for people enough for us to live outside of ourselves and to see a soul in the value that it is. And without the power of the Spirit, that is absolutely impossible. It's the Spirit that motivates us unto this kind of a life. Furthermore, you'll notice with me in the passage that it's because of Peter's devotion and link with God, Peter being filled with the Spirit, that Peter, in the passage here, has, or God has Peter's attention. You'll notice that Peter, even in the middle of the day, is in an attitude of prayer. And while he's praying, God has him so locked in that Peter puts the will and purpose of God for that day above even the appetite that he has at the moment. We see that he becomes hungry, but God won't let him go, and he won't let go of God. God, you've got something that you're trying to show me, something that you're trying to do in me, and that's got to be something that you and I have as well. Part of being filled with the Spirit is that we have a relationship with God where prayer, the Word of God, listening to God, watching for his work in our daily life, that that's a moment-by-moment experience. Not something that we just do in the mornings before we leave the house or what we do in church on Sundays or midweek or during our home Bible studies. But that moment by moment, God has such a hold of our lives that he's able to speak to us and draw our attention to the things that are going around us in such a way that he's able to then lead our lives and we can connect the dots between what he's teaching and showing, what's happening in prayer and relationship, and then what's happening in our actions in real life. And we see that Peter was that kind of person. He's being prepared for this interaction. His life is in a position where he's listening and ready to be led. And I ask you this morning, if the Spirit could just shine a searchlight on you and me here this morning. Is our life that way, believer, Christian? Are you in a position where you're listening and ready to be led? Or is your routine, your time, your thing... Your life, my life, is it so important that we're not willing any longer to be interrupted or to be led of the Lord in the way that he wants to lead us? Peter has the Spirit's attention, and even as God is preparing Cornelius, God is preparing Peter. And when we listen to God, he prepares us. You ask the question, you say, how do I receive the power of God's Holy Spirit? Because I know I've received Christ, I believe that I'm saved, I know something happened. I moved from darkness to light, from death to life. But I don't believe I'm operating in the Spirit's power. How can I be filled with the power of God? How can I live this kind of life? The answer is extremely simple. You know what it is? It's to ask with abandonment. Ask with abandonment. What do I mean? Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 13, or 11, verse 13, he said that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those that ask. It's that simple. We don't have to jump through a hoop. We don't have to pay money. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. It's a gift. Peter said you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said it's obtained, it's received by asking. But in the asking, there's the implication of abandonment. Meaning, 
If I'm going to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to come into my life, sit upon the throne, and be the empowering drive of who I am, then it goes without saying that I'm going to have to relinquish self-control. Not, no, no, no. no. We, we don't, don't hear that the wrong way. The Spirit gives us self-control, but control of the self and give that over to God. It would be like if we were, me and you, driving in a car. And I was behind the wheel. And I said, you know what? I feel like you could do this better than me. You know where you're going. You know how this works. So I'm going to yield to you, and I want you to drive. And I hold on to the wheel. You say, well, are you going to let me drive? Yeah, please drive. I'm asking you to drive. And you say, well, are you going to stop the car and pull over? No, no, no. I just want you to drive. And then I keep driving. And that's what many people do when they ask. They say, God, well, if you want to punch me in the face and drag me into the back seat and then take over in the front seat, then I'm willing to let you do that. But until then, I'm not going to get out of the seat and yield and let you have control. No, when we ask, we ask with abandonment. In Ezekiel chapter 47, it's an obscure prophecy tucked into the late pages of a long prophecy. Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel is taken by an angel and he's brought to a river. And he sees in a vision, he sees a river. And the angel says, get in it. And it's the river of God. It's coming out from the temple. And so he steps in, and it's a river that simply covers his feet. And he goes, wow, this is great. This is nice. Love this water. It's awesome. And the angel says, come on out. He comes out. They walk down about 1,500 feet. He says, get in again. He gets in the second time. Now the water's up to his knees. So he's in there, and he's like, okay, a little deeper. This feels good. I love it. This is great. He says, come on. They walk another 1,500. He gets back in. Now the water's up to his waist. He's like, Well, this is cool. You know, there's a rush here. I can feel the current is picking up. He says, come on, let's go. 1,500 more feet, they go down the river. And this time, Ezekiel, he stands at the edge. And he sees, right by looking at the water, that the water's too deep. It's above the shoulders. It's above the head. He says it's waters to swim in. And the angel calls him back. We don't know whether he got in or not, but the angel calls back and he says, do you understand? And then the vision kind of just ends, and he describes what he sees on the side. It's a picture of the Spirit's flow in the believer's choice. See, we get in. We get in up to our feet. We go, yes, Jesus, I'm going to walk with you. And he covers our feet and we begin walking with Christ. This is awesome. We walk on for a while. It comes to the knees. We learn to pray. The knees always speaking of prayer. Yes, Lord, I'm learning. I'm talking to you. I'm growing. This is awesome. We go a little further. It comes to the loins the place of reproduction. We might even share our faith with someone else. We talk about the Lord. It becomes more real to us. The current of His truth is picking up. But there comes a point in God's will for you and for me, for the life of every believer. God's ultimately drawing us to the point where He says, do you see those waters? And we say, yeah, I see them. Do you understand that if you jump in here, absolute abandonment, from now on you no longer have control to get in and out as you will, but you go where the river goes. And are you willing to surrender your will in your life and to be so consumed by the current of my plan and will for you? Do you trust me enough that my plan for your life is greater than yours? And sadly, many believers say, Lord, I'm content at the waist, but I'm not willing to swim. The Spirit-filled life is a swimming life. It's when we say, Lord, you take the wheel. I want you to have all of me. I want my life to be yours. And we jump in. Once you jump in there, you can no longer work your way to the shore. God has control of your life. You've given it over to him. That's what it means to ask with abandonment. Lord, I need to be filled with you. I recognize that I've been in control all this time, even though I'm saved. But Lord, I want to live the life that you've called me to live. Peter was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And thus he was able to be used, led, and empowered by God in a magnificent way. The second thing that we see in Peter here that God has also given to us in our mission, in the orchestration of arranging our meetings with other people, non-believers, is that Peter has a very simple message to give. It's a very simple message that God gave to Peter. It's given to us between verses 36 and 43 of the passage. It's a very simple message. How many times do people not share Christ because they don't know what to say? I don't know enough. I want you to look at how simple it is what Peter shared in the message. 
The first thing that we see in Peter's message, it's given to us in verse 36, is that Peter wastes no time in bringing the person and the name of Jesus to center stage. Do you see that? Look at it. It says, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. Peter recognized and understood the importance of that name and of that person in the sharing of the message. And thus, Peter always made it his priority to get that out there first. Interesting fact about Peter, for those of you that study characters in the Bible, is that in every single sermon Peter preaches post-Pentecost, Jesus is mentioned in the first sentence or the first couple of sentences. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He said it in the first breath. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, the first time they were persecuted and had to give an answer, Peter said, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son, Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Again, Peter giving a defense or an answer. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You elders of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, does this man stand before you whole? And again, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, again, Peter giving a defense. It says, Then Peter and all the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. And then again, we see it here in chapter 10, verse 36, as Peter preaches to Cornelius, he mentions Jesus in the very first breath. Why do I bring that up? Why is that so important? Because the Bible declares, and Peter understood what's recorded in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and that is that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. And the faster that you and I can bring Jesus to the forefront in our sharing with someone else, the faster things get where they need to go in the conversation. What happens all too often is that we think, well, that name is so offensive, I'll bring it around through the back door. When you've done that, Satan has already won because I guarantee you, if you have that mentality, that back door will never open. He will bring the conversation into racquetball or technology or iPhones or sports or some other way of connecting, but Jesus Christ will never be mentioned. It will never bring, become the center of the conversation. But we see in Peter that this was so important, that he presents him as who he is, that he is the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. In our interactions with unbelievers, there is a place for kindness, a place for simple relatability, a place for simply dropping the seed, a part of you know, our, our interactions with people. All of that is good and right. People should know that we're Christians and we shouldn't, the first time we meet someone, just say, I'm a Jesus freak. You know, that might not go over so well. But in God's orchestrating and drawing people along and leading us, there will come a time when there's a coffee conversation. Hey, you know, we, you know who I am, you know who I am. Is there any way we can get together for coffee? Or they're going through something and they come to you and they say, man, you know, I'm just going through something so heavy, so wretched at my house. And now there's an opportunity. The conversation is going to happen. Bring it to Jesus. Just bring Jesus into it in some way. Don't let that slip by. The second thing that Peter does after simply presenting Jesus Christ to Cornelius and his family is that he then substantiates who Jesus is with simple things from the scriptures. It's in verses 37 through 40. Notice, he mentions John the Baptist in verse 37. In verse 38, he says that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost and with power, that he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. How simple is that? 
He doesn't give facts. He doesn't say, in Luke 7, Jesus cast out a demon. In Mark 14, he multiplied low. He doesn't do any of that. He just said, listen, Jesus was God. He came into the world. He went about doing good and casting out demons. And people will look at you and say, yeah, but the Christians are hypocrites. No, 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 I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about Jesus. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Is there anything wrong with that? <laughs> right? Jesus said if someone hits you in the face with one hand, turn the other cheek and let them hit you with the other as well. Is there anything wrong with that? You say, yeah. In New York there is. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> no, we know that there's nothing wrong with what Jesus said. Is there anything? He went about doing good. His will towards man was good. He was healing. He was casting out the devils. He was healing diseases. That's who he was. And then he brings it to the death and resurrection in verse 39. It says that they slew him and they hanged him on the tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. He simply gives who Jesus is and he pulls it right out of the Bible. This is who, this Jesus that I'm talking about, this is who he is. He's God in the flesh. His will towards you is good. He died on a cross for your sin and then he rose again proving that he was righteous. That's who Jesus is. He simply substantiates the person that he's presenting. And he does it by the scriptures. Why does Peter do this by the scriptures? The answer is because the scripture, the word of God, is authoritative and it's anointed. And when you and I just simply share scripture with people, God can do something with that in the heart of a seeker, someone who needs the Lord. The third thing that Peter does in verses 41 and 42, is that he shares his personal testimony. He says right there in verse 41, he says, Not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And then he commanded us to preach unto the people. He, he simply says, well, not only is Jesus the Lord, and we can know it because the Bible says so, but I have a personal relationship with him. I've interacted with him. And I can share with you what he's done in my life. It goes from information to inspiration. It goes from relating facts to relationship. To wherein now he's not God who's somewhere out there and I'm telling you about something that you can know about. But he's God who's personal and real and internal and that you can relate with. I'm sharing with you who he is to me. And every Christian has a testimony. At least you should. If you don't, you should question whether or not you're truly saved. Because if God comes into your life, you know that God comes into your life. One time I heard a preacher who was late coming in preaching his sermon. He got delayed. And so they waited, the people, and he came in several minutes late. And he came in, and he was late, but he was there. And he said, I want to apologize to you all for being late here this morning. He said, I got hit by a Mack truck when I was crossing the road coming in, square on at full speed, and it slowed me down. It delayed my entrance in among you. He says, but I'm here now, so let's open our Bibles. And then he started preaching his message, and after a couple minutes, he stopped, and he said, hey, by the way, were any of you wondering when I said I got hit by a Mack truck, why and how I can be standing here so perfectly and completely sharing this message with you? And, and, you know, obviously that was the big elephant in the room. Everyone was wondering that. And so he said, listen, if I tell you I got hit by a Mack truck, and yet there's no visible evidence that substantiates that claim, and yet I tell you that the God of the universe came into my life and I'm born again, if you see no evidence of that interaction in my life, does it call into question the validity of the claim? In other words, listen, if God comes into your life, there ought to be a bigger difference in you after that happens than there would be if you got hit by a physical Mack truck. That's our testimony. And what God calls us to give away is not something that's esoteric or out there or hidden wisdom that we need to learn. What has God done in your life? My favorite testimony that's ever been given in all the Bible and all of God's history is in John chapter 9. I think it's verses 26 and 27. I wrote it down, but I don't know where. There was a blind man who was healed by Jesus, and Jesus slipped away before the man could get a, a sight. He couldn't see who Jesus was. And there was a big stir about this man who was healed. 
And the Pharisees found him. They hounded him. They hunted him down because they wanted to find something against Jesus. And so they cornered this blind man who could now see. And they said, who was he? Vicious, you know, snarling religious people. Is he a sinner? What is he? And the guy's like, whoa, 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 guys. He goes, you're asking me all these deep theological questions about the man. I have no idea. He says, one thing I know. I was blind. I now see. And that's it. That was the whole of his testimony. And a testimony is that simple. What has God done in your life? We bring Jesus to the forefront. We substantiate who he is by the scripture. And then we share what God has done in our life, showing that God is relational, personal, and real, not just a theological concept somewhere out there. And if something hasn't happened in your life, then don't share it. You just share what God has done in you. And God can use that. The fourth thing that Peter does, and finally, is that Peter shows Cornelius the door. Notice with me in verse 43. Peter says, To him, Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believes in him shall receive the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't leave it out there for him to consider. He says, I've told you who Jesus is. I've shown you the answer. There's the door. It's up to you whether or not you want to go through it. And here's what it means to go through the door. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he died and rose? Do you believe that it was for your sins that he was crucified, slain on the tree, and that he rose again from the dead? If you believe it, then God will forgive your sins. Now listen, do you realize that that is the issue? The issue concerning salvation is the forgiveness of sins. We established earlier that Cornelius was a good man. He was righteous. He was a giver. He was a prayer. He was devout. He sought after God. But something has to be done with the sin that exists in every one of us, and that Cornelius was lacking. And Peter says it's through faith in Jesus Christ, believing in his name, putting your trust in him, as the substitutionary payment for your sins, he absorbed the penalty for your sin on the cross. And now you are trading places with him. It's not your righteousness plus what he did. You're saying, forget all the good that I am and what I've done and the bad. And I'm letting Jesus be, for me, righteousness and salvation. And in that is the forgiveness of sin. Oftentimes, where preaching, sharing, talking about Christ fails is that we forget or leave out the fact that Christ died for sinners. It's offensive to tell someone that they're a sinner, isn't it? But yet, without that understanding, there can be no true salvation. Peter says the issue is the forgiveness of your sins. I was reading a book that my daughter has. It's called If. It's by Amy Carmichael. And the whole book consists of just these little one or two sentence sayings where she says things like, if I can speak easily about someone else's weakness, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. And she just goes on and on. If I can do this, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I can, I know nothing of Calvary's love. One of the things she said struck me. It's on this vein. It says this. She said, if I refuse to allow the law of God to take effect, because of the distress it causes me to see that law in operation in someone else, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Listen, sometimes when we say to a person, listen, you're a sinner before God, and he doesn't accept you in your current position, and something has to be done with that in order for you to be saved, that can be an extremely tense and uncomfortable thing to say. But if we're unwilling to say it, then we're not giving them the gospel. Because without the bad news of knowing my sinfulness, I can't receive the good news of God's grace and forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. And so Peter brings it to the issue. Now the beauty of the whole encounter is given to us in verse 44. It says that while Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. You know why that's so remarkable? Because it tells us that we bring the message but God does the work. It's not up to us to save anyone. We can't save anyone. God did it. God did the whole thing. He arranged Cornelius and set him up. 
He arranged Peter and set him up. He gave Peter the words to speak. Jesus was the one who died on the cross. And then the Spirit opened up and came into Cornelius' life. It was all the work of the Holy Spirit the whole time. He sealed it up. It's not our job to save. It's our job to be Spirit-filled, willing to speak, and to give the message. Show the door. And after that, it's up to someone else to believe. Will they receive it? Cornelius does, and so the Spirit comes into his life. The other thing that's remarkable about this passage to me, remember at the very beginning when the angel came to Cornelius? Remember? An angel came and said, seek for Peter. I always wonder, why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius the message? God, you could have really saved yourself a lot of trouble here. Just have the angel tell Cornelius about Jesus, and Cornelius can believe and be saved. No, 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 it's not God's way. He has ordained and chosen that the message be carried by human vessels, and he will not violate his chosen way. Thus, the burden is on us. God has given us this ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's place, be reconciled to God. For he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's given to us this ministry of reconciliation. It's for us. The, the worship team can come as we close this morning, as we uh, kind of conclude our study in this passage. But I recognize um, in, in concluding that on a Sunday morning like this, I'm speaking to two different audiences. You know, I, I usually teach Wednesday nights, and primarily on Wednesday nights, we're speaking purely to Christians. It isn't often that non-Christians come to church on a, on a Wednesday night. But on a Sunday morning, I recognize some of you uh, here for the first time, some of you invited by other people. You know, so I know I'm talking to two different audiences. To the Christian, the application of this message is extremely obvious. And I asked this morning, are you in need of a fresh filling of the Spirit of God? Perhaps this morning would God, as he shines the searchlight on your priorities and on your heart and even on mine, would he whisper to us that we become so self-absorbed, self-consumed? Or that for a long time, perhaps we've lived in the river up to our knees or maybe only up to our feet, but we have yet to give ourselves completely to being immersed in the things of God? God's will and desire, in fact, the very purpose for life, maybe even the purpose you're not experiencing what you think you should in your Christian walk, is because there needs to be a diving in, a saying, God, you take the wheel. I need to know you more fully, more consistently. I need to have your power in my life more fully. I need to see the lost with your eyes. I need to value souls the way that you do. And God, I need you to change me on the inside. I would encourage you this morning, we're going to close with a song. Lord, you said, ask, and you shall receive. And it's all in the context of our study this morning. I would encourage you, Christian, if that's you here this morning, as we sing that song, that you would just ask God, Lord, fill me. Lord, change me. Lord, convict me. Make me willing in the day of your power. The scripture promises that he will. The other audience here this morning, the seeker, the one who's wondering, is this God real? Is there an answer for this condition of my soul? To you this morning, like Cornelius, you might be devout. You might be religious. You might be a giver. You might pray. You might think that you're okay because you're better than someone else. The truth of the matter is this. Jesus Christ, whom God has set to be Lord of all, God became a man, walked in human flesh, gave his life upon a cross after living it perfectly and sinless. And as he was dying on that cross in some way, supernaturally, Jesus Christ was agreeing to take in himself the punishment for every one of your sins. 
He was aware of you, of your face, your actions and behavior, of everything that you would ever do, think, say, or be that was contrary to the perfection of God. And he willingly said as he took the cross, yes, I'm willing, lay that blow upon me. Yes, lay that strike upon me. Lay that sin upon me. I'm willing to take even that. And every one of your sins, every one of my sins that we committed, Jesus Christ paid for and died for on that cross. And then three days later, he rose again because he actually was righteous and it was impossible for death to hold him. And now for whosoever will believe and put their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, the Bible declares that God will write your name in heaven and he will forgive every one of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Spirit. God will relate in your life and you'll be changed. And it could be as God orchestrated the arrangement between Peter and Cornelius. He orchestrated your attendance here this Sunday morning. And so I show you the door. And I say to you that Jesus is willing. He's calling. He's knocking. Is there any here this morning, just as we close, you want to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That you know you need the forgiveness of your sins? That that's the issue, the thing holding you back? If that's you, I just invite you to just lift up your hand. The company of all of us that have raised our hand at some point along the way. Is there anyone here that wants to know Jesus Christ? God bless you. Is there anyone else that will confess him as Christ this morning? And Lord, God bless you. He sees you. He knows you. He knew you from the foundation of the world. Is there anyone else? Father, we thank you this morning. And Lord, you see every heart. Even those that are evaluating, considering these things. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your salvation. Thank you for this power. And Lord, we want to do your will. We want to serve you. And so we're praying this morning that you would fill us. Oh God, that you would give us a renewed commission. Help us to see the joy of that river and to take the plunge. We trust you and we thank you. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.